We'll be in Matthew 23 this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn there. I wanted to see, just a little bit, I'm curious, when is it okay to have enemies around here? I mean, like, can you be enemies with the Yankees, for example? Because when I lived in Connecticut before, if you lived in certain parts of Connecticut, it was okay to dislike the Yankees because you were in the Red Sox section of Connecticut. But if you went farther south from where I lived, you could become more of a Yankees fan, and that was accepted. Now, I know this is Massachusetts, so you have to say Red Sox no matter what. But when is it okay to have enemies, if it's not the Yankees, let's say? Which place has the best lobster? Maybe high school sports for some of you, other certain businesses. When's it okay to have enemies? Is God ever pleased when we have enemies? Now, I know that we've all had enemies here or there. We have them. It's a neighbor who, you know, doesn't mow their grass properly, right? And we're just being honest, you know, it's that neighbor. It's that other person, that somebody. They had a better business than we did. They made better grades than we did. They whatever, but they just turn into enemies in our hearts, well, oddly enough, Scripture assumes that we're going to have enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. So it's a given. <laughs> he already is just kind of like, let's not try to pretend you're going to have enemies. And I think it's helpful because sometimes when I was a younger Christian, I thought, well, I'm supposed to just kind of be nice to everybody. Like, I could never have an enemy. So I would allow myself to sort of have benevolent denial. That's what I'm calling it. It's a fancy sounding word, benevolent denial, just meaning they're not my enemy because I shouldn't say bad things about people. I should love my enemies, but they still have to be enemies to be loved. Like we gotta have both. So I was doing neither, just kind of having this benevolent denial, pretending whatever you wanna call it. When is it right to have our enemies? And when do we treat enemies like enemies? Well, Matthew 23, has the answer for us this morning. It's a long passage, so hang on. But we do need to get our heads around Matthew 23. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 33. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted." But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you can see where Jesus is going here. <laughs> Hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you, too, outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets." So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? It's a long one. It's hot. It's a little uncomfortable. A little uncomfortable. I, don't, I lost track how many times Jesus called them hypocrites to their face. I don't know if anybody was counting. You need a clicker, like in baseball. Speaking of baseball, like umps have a strike and ball clicker. You know, you need one for like hypocrite, 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 hypocrite. How many times did Jesus say it? Pretty intense. He's worked up. The fact that Jesus has enemies is helpful for us in this moment. It's also good news. We're going to get to that. But first, I just want to say that enemies are normal. Honestly, seeing people as enemies is almost a given today. There's an election coming up. There's all kinds of arguments in our society. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? I believe this. I believe that. This should be illegal. That should be legal. All of this stuff turns into arguments. And what people do with these is they find that, you know, somebody on the other side of whatever they think, I'm just going to cancel them. I'm just going to cut them off. I'm just not going to have a relationship with them. They're a bad person. We disagree, but they're a bad person, so we're done. But who does Jesus choose as enemies? Well, Matthew chapter 22 helps us understand 23. Funny how that works. You know, the pages before help you be ready. And I'm not going to read all of that. You've been patient enough with chapter 23. But in chapter 22, a group of religious leaders known as Sadducees challenge Jesus. They're religious leaders. They're very educated. They basically get in this debate with Jesus. And Jesus silences the Sadducees. 
he, he just is brilliant, and he just like shuts them down, okay, in this debate. So at the end of chapter 22, the Pharisees say, well, we can probably, you know, I'm sort of imagining they would think, well, we can do better than the Sadducees did. There's like this rivalry, speaking of enemies, kind of the Pharisees' way of doing things or the Sadducees' way of doing things. So the Pharisees are like, well, we saw the Sadducees get humiliated by Jesus, but we're the Pharisees, so now we're going to challenge Jesus. So they challenge him to a debate, and Jesus overcomes the Pharisees, which makes two points for heaven's team, in case you're tracking that way. And this isn't like this little religious squabble. It's not like, you know, you could think about... um, I don't know, people in baseball could argue about which brand of batting glove to use, or musicians could argue, well, which, which guitar string is the best kind of guitar string, or who's the best piano tuner in town? This isn't sort of this little squabble among religious professionals who say, well, the wood in the pulpit has to be maple. No, 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 pulpits must be made out of oak. This is not some sort of petty squabble. This is a theological showdown about who gets to be in charge of God's kingdom on earth. And Jesus has already made his claim. In Matthew 21, he came riding into the city on a donkey, just as prophesied in the Old Testament. He's laying claim, saying, I'm the king. And the Sadducees don't like it, and the Pharisees don't like it. The scribes don't like it. They're powerful, they're prestigious, they're wealthy, and they think they're in charge. But Jesus silences them. And then in chapter 23, as it, you might remember, I know it was a lot of verses, but he says, or scripture says, he talked to the crowds and he talked to the disciples. He doesn't choose the sinners as his enemies. He doesn't choose the common people as his enemies. He doesn't choose the crowds. He doesn't choose the disciples as his enemies. He doesn't even choose those people who disagree with him as his enemies. He realizes these crowds around me, these disciples are on their own spiritual journey, but I want to talk to them about who my real enemies are. So who exactly are Jesus' enemies? It's the most common word I read this morning. Anybody want to take a guess? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Why would Christ be so critical of these human leaders? Over and over and over again, we lost count, but hypocrite, 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 hypocrite. Well, it's not what they teach. It's not what they say with their mouths, because you'll notice early in this, Jesus used this technical term, the chair of Moses, saying these people have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. He says, keep listening to them. They're seated in the chair of Moses. In other words, they're teaching you the same thing that God wanted to spread through Moses going back thousands of years. So Jesus isn't saying it's time to stop listening to God's word or it's time to stop having authoritative teaching. He's saying these people are worth listening to. They're qualified. They're educated. It's not what they're saying that's wrong. It's the application to their own lives. The people in the seat of Moses are actually sons of hell. These leaders who ought to be heaven bound have been sentenced to hell. Plenty of people in my life have said, I'm not going to church. Place is full of hypocrites. I don't want to be part of that. I'm not going to go hang around with a bunch of hypocrites. But Jesus set the crowds and the disciples, because that's who he's talking to, he sets them free with a simple message, listen to them, but don't follow them. Hear what they say, because it's good, but don't be like them. Obey God's word. And I think he says the same thing to us. Don't let hypocrisy keep you out of the kingdom. Where have you let other people's disobedience hinder your progress? Don't let hypocrisy keep you out of the kingdom. 
He's fighting his enemies. We're going to get more into this, but he's fighting his enemies, so don't cut off your own rewards. Number two, his enemies are religious leaders who push you down and lift themselves up. You're wondering where I'm getting this from. There's these really curious words in here. Verse 5 says that the Pharisees do their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. What is a phylactery? Now, a few of you probably know this, but maybe some of you are just like, what is this bizarre word? One more Bible word that's just really strange. A phylactery is theoretically a small leather box which goes on the left arm. If you're an observant Jew, what we call the Old Testament, they call the Torah, said to, to have a, this small leather box with scripture inside, particular scriptures inside, and they would have one on their forehead as well with scriptures inside written in Hebrew, the idea being, God's word is on my mind. God's word is close to my heart. God's word is this part of my life. I'm living it. I'm thinking about it. I'm pondering it. It's this part of my life. What this verse is saying, what Jesus is doing when he's speaking to these people as hypocrites, is he's saying they made their boxes bigger and bigger and bigger. It's supposed to be a small box because your forehead's not that big. But what they did is they said, hmm, I need a phylactery. <laughs> I got a phylactery. Oh, look how big my phylactery is. Look how big my phylactery is. Got a big phylactery. So they're walking around Jerusalem. Look how much Bible I know. And then when you got really far along, you know, it's like, look how much Bible I know. Is it any wonder Jesus is like blind guides? You hypocrites, you blind guides, you can't even read it. It's so big, your face is covered up. It's so big, you can't even see anymore. Look how godly I am. Now, what about tassels? Well, it's pieces of fabric, long strings that would be attached to the corners of a shirt. And they'd have, they thought a shirt had four corners in their mind, so you'd have four tassels hanging from the corners of the shirts that they'd wear. And the idea, again, with that is a way to cultivate faithfulness in their personal life. God instructed them to do it so they could have these tassels to help them think about God. They'd be certain colors. I'm not going to go into all of it, but it was a way of stirring up their devotion. Remember the scriptures. Proclaim who they are as God's people with these tassels. You might have heard of, maybe, maybe just maybe, I hadn't really heard of this person until I found this book. It's by Lois Everberg. She wrote a book called Walking in the Dust of the Rabbi's Steps, Lois Everberg. So what she does is she takes the Jewish worldview, she digs into it, and she explains it for those of us who aren't Jewish so that we can understand things like this. And what she says about Matthew 23 is this. By enlarging their phylacteries and tassels, they were claiming honor and prestige from their piety. Do you know what would happen if these guys came to church here, if they showed up at Living Hope on a Sunday morning? You'd all get a text message. Ding! Levi the Pharisee just walked in. And you'd be like, who's Levi the Pharisee? And you'd look over, and here he'd come. Look at those tassels. Look at those tassels. And Levi'd be strolling in. Boom! Look at my phylactery. Look at the size of that phylactery. Woo! That guy's in our church this morning. He's strutting. He's looking good. We must, when he left his house to come to church, his car speakers were like, I'm going to church. I'm going to church. I'm going to church. Look at me. I'm righteous. Look at me. Sorry, sinners. I'm going to church. When he mows his grass, like you look out there later, the grass is done mowing, and it says, like, more righteous than you. In the, you know, you're like, how does his yard do that? 
They cook dinner for the neighbor. There's like a big banner that says, look how great I am. Look how self-righteous I am. Did anyone see last Thursday's Facebook post? I'm going to click through here. I'm trying to do these these days, but I apologize. Right here. On our church, this isn't me. This is Juliana. Juliana put this together. Juliana Eskelin. Serve others without the selfies. Serve others without the selfies. I hope you saw that. Jesus isn't saying, don't mow your grass, don't love your neighbor, don't come to church. He believes in the chair of Moses. He believes that people ought to gather to worship God. They ought to gather to hear from the scriptures. What he's saying is listen to the right teaching, but reject the wrong living. When is it right to make enemies? When they block the kingdom. Most of us just cut off before that point. We're just like, we're done with relationship. I'm done with going to that place. I'm not going to be part of that group. If there's people like that, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. But Jesus says it's not only possible to go to church with hypocrites, it's his plan. The hypocrites should repent, but the obedient should stand firm in their faith. Christ pushes these hypocrites out of the assembly. He says, you're sons of hell. You're hypocrites. He goes, right, 19 times or whatever. He says that. Jesus, though, says to the rest of us, take the responsibility for yourself Listen, but reject. Listen, but reject. Resist evil. Stay in relationship with God. We need to pray. God, give us this day the wisdom and the grit to stay in church sometimes. A third enemy of Jesus, just briefly, is religious leaders who love titles. In other words, don't become a big shot who loves other people to call you by fancy titles. Jesus says enough of that. Just be a servant. Enough self-promotion Enough of the showing off. Just live a godly life. And I think it's probably enough me preaching about dead people, like these Jewish religious leaders, you know, that Jesus already spoke to them once. It's pretty weird of me to be preaching at them in front of you. You know, kind of, kind of a bizarre thing. But Jesus is saying to us, listen, but live differently. Choose your leaders based on what they say and on what they do. The Apostle Paul started churches. I read from Colossians earlier a message that he wrote to them. He told a different church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You can't imitate people you watch on a screen. This is why Jesus gives elders to his church. And it's not just me I'm talking about. I realize this is kind of bizarre. I'm up here. I'm talking about other dead religious leaders who Jesus said were really bad. And now I'm talking about elders in a church. I'm just up here because it's in the scriptures. And I think one of the reasons that Jesus says this and brings it up is he wants real flesh and blood people who live in your zip code, who show up on Sunday morning and that they grow and you grow through the realities of relationship. Jesus never started a YouTube channel. And it wasn't because he was 2,000 years too early. It was like, well, they don't have iPhones yet, so we're going to have to wait a few millennia. Like, we'll get there, disciples. But no, he didn't start a YouTube channel because his plan was churches. His plan was gatherings of people who believe in him, who worship him, who walk together in life, who pursue the mission of Christ. And that's a, that's a high calling for us as a church. But it comes with the question, does our learning affect our living? Do we actually learn from each other? Do we have spiritual leaders who help us with transformation of character? I noticed lots and lots of teachers on YouTube or Facebook or, I mean, we use Facebook or uh, podcasts, you know, all of it. There's so many out there, TV shows, right now, media, books. It's not just, you know, digital stuff, it's books. 
magazines, and I learn from it. Online teaching informs me, it motivates me, I use it. It's a good resource, and I'm not even here to say, like, don't listen to this person or do listen. I'm not even going into all of that. I'm just bringing you two suggestions from Matthew 23. First, are these people influencing you? Are they teaching the scriptures? Are they teaching what Jesus taught the way that Jesus taught it? And these disciples, are they passing on the faith? Because remember, Jesus said, people seated in the chair of Moses have authority. They're worth listening to. They're teaching the right thing. So that's important. A second thing is, to the extent that they're influencing you, do you have a close enough relationship to know that they're living out what they're teaching, that they're living out what they say that they believe? Because it's possible to hide behind a YouTube channel. It's possible to be really popular, have lots of likes, lots of shares, lots of subscribers, but nobody actually knows if you have integrity until a lawsuit comes out, police report gets filed. Is the great teacher walking the walk, not just talking the talk? I bring this up because transformation requires relationship. It requires connections to people. It requires communication, cooperation, collaboration, Discipleship in the Bible happened around dinner tables. It happened about around walking down the road. Several of us got baptized last week. That's something that can't happen digitally. And what unfolds for all of us as a church is to be the kind of people who are saying, we saw spiritual progress in your life. Let me share the spiritual progress in mine. How are you growing? Let me tell you my story when I got baptized. Let me tell you the story. The first time I prayed or read the Bible or whatever those moments of growth are, it can be one-on-one, two-on-two, five-on-five. It's the women's gathering on Tuesday. It can be the men's breakfast on Thursday. It can be the parking lot when we're having coffee and donuts. Iron can sharpen iron through these relationships. We grow, we transform. It can happen when you're in a few weeks, sorry to say, picking up kids at school when that whole thing gets going again. Like maybe there's lines while you're waiting at the school to pick people up. You can have some conversations in the lines. We need transformation, not just information. We need to change and we need to, help. We need to have people to help that happen. There's even greater truth today, even more incredible truth. We're just getting started because in the second half of this passage where Jesus starts saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, which is not you for the record, all that woe to you stuff. Jesus is making enemies for the right reason because they're blocking people from the kingdom of God. I'm not going to preach to dead people. That'd be bizarre, like I said. If they wouldn't change when they listen to Jesus, I'm not sure it's going to do much good since they're not in the room, they're not on Facebook, all right? This is not going to do us much good. But I'll summarize the why behind the woes. Number one, they keep people out of heaven. Number two, they don't love people. Number three, they make people worse. He points that out, kind of shocking to me. Number four, they add their convictions to God's word. They don't just teach the scriptures. They start putting things on people that don't belong. Number five, they hide their inner darkness while obeying God in tiny ways. Now, why does this matter today? Why are we still talking about these woes that were meant for somebody else? It's because Jesus is fighting for you. Some of you have never had somebody fight for you. Some of you have never been fought for, never had people go into battle for you who loved you enough. Now, some of you have. Some of you have been loved like that. You've been served like that. You felt that protection, that passion, that love. Maybe it was enough for you. Maybe it wasn't enough for you. But the unbelievable truth of this morning is that Jesus is fighting for you. I want to quickly share two scriptures from the book of Hebrews. 
the book of Hebrews, if I had to summarize it, I would say is a book about the greatness of Jesus compared to every other spiritual or religious reality. Hebrews chapter 10, sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, For it was fitting for him, this is Christ, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So he went through sufferings so that he could bring many people to glory. Hebrews 7.25 also shows us the heart of Jesus. I'm going to read that to you briefly. Hebrews 2.10 talked about what Jesus did on the earth. Hebrews 7.25 shares what he's doing now. Verse 25 of chapter 7 in Hebrews says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, that's present tense, he always lives right now to make intercession for them. Intercession's not a word we use every day. It means he's talking to God about us so that our lives get changed in a way that God's pleased with. He and God the Father are working together through prayer so that our lives get changed. Jesus fights against people who block the way to the kingdom. He's making enemies for the right reason. He is battling in Matthew 23 with religious leaders who are sons of hell. And you remember the story of Job and many others where Satan himself and his demons are also battling against God, which means they're trying to negatively influence our lives. Jesus is fighting for them because he's what? Making intercession. He's always alive to do that. Jesus launches into a full-scale attack of his enemies and the thing I think is best for us at this point is just to marvel at the love of Jesus for us. The songs we sang this morning, the thoughts you can think about this afternoon, tomorrow night, family altar time. Maybe just marvel at the love of Jesus for you. We're in that crowd. We're those people. Had we been there in Matthew 23, we'd have been that crowd. Some of us might have felt like disciples. Some of us might have felt like the crowd. Wherever you find yourself, you would have been able to say, look at him arguing with those people for me. Look at him fighting with those people. He said he's the king and he's backing it up. He's arguing with the most powerful, wealthy, religious, established, politically connected. Like he's fighting for us, man. He's for us. The chief shepherd, the good shepherd, man, he's standing up for us. He's standing up. He's speaking up and he's not going to shut up. Like look at the way he's talking to them. He loves us. He is cursing them and cursing them and cursing them and cursing them. He's chewing them up and spitting them out. He's tearing them up the left side and down the right side. He is destroying speculations. He's shattering every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's why he ends with a simple question. How will you escape the sentence of hell? This isn't the only time that Jesus blows up with rage against those who bar the way to heaven. He does it in Matthew 18 saying, anybody who causes somebody to believe in me, anyone who causes someone who believes in me to stumble, that person has a horrible future. You can read Matthew 18, but Jesus says, it'd be better for that person who causes stumbling to have a heavy millstone put around their neck and be thrown in the sea. It's pretty strong, shorter than today's passage, which you probably wish I'd preached on that instead. But he says the same thing. God's people have advocates who take their needs before the Lord. Jesus is the chief advocate. This is not the only time a Christian can, Matthew 23, not the only time Christians can righteously have enemies. Jesus cares for children, wants to protect them. He cares for vulnerable adults. Paul, Peter, others, they had enemies. There's other situations like false teaching, vulnerable adults, 
children that deserve protection. But still, how can Jesus be so brutal? I mean, he's kind of gone berserk here. What are these leaders doing that's so wrong? I think some of us could be more motivated by some things closer to home. This seems still a little bit like a kind of this confusing religious argument. But Philippians 3.18 helps us understand the heart of Jesus a little more. Paul writes, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and I now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. The Pharisees and the scribes are enemies of the cross. The Sadducees are enemies of the cross. See, they wanted to achieve righteousness without Jesus' life and death. They wanted to please God apart from faith in the Son of God. But the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Is it any wonder that John eleven fifty three 53 says, from that day on, they plan to kill Jesus? And it's not the only time that they plan to kill Jesus, but you'll notice that he didn't plan to kill them. He planned to save them. He was hoping to see them delivered from their sins, but they were opposed to salvation by faith, which is Jesus' way. They wanted, you guessed it, giant phylacteries and long tassels. You know, tassels down to like here would have been normal, but they were like, I need them down here, you know. And mine are a little brighter blue than everybody else's. Mine are a little bit, you know, mine are a little bit better, a little bit longer, handmade, fair trade, all this type of stuff. They'd find any sort of positive spin they could put on it. Woven in the darkness, you know, whatever. They're coming up with all these reasons. Jesus was making enemies for the right reason. They were keeping people out of the kingdom. So he reveals their hypocrisy. He says, your future is hell. You are sons of hell. And then he practices what he preaches. He dies on a cross to defeat Satan, the true evil enemy. I read Colossians 2 earlier. I'm just going to pick up verse 15 again. Say it one more time. When Jesus had disarmed the rulers and the authorities... He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. That's what he did for us. How have you responded to the Jesus who fights for you? He made a way where there was no way. It was blocked. Like these people were blocking it and turning people into sons of hell, even worse than themselves. Have you walked through the way that he's made? He's made enemies for the best of reasons, which is your new life. Choose him as Lord if you want the kingdom. Choose him if you want to get out from under the burden of hypocrites. He knows they're there. He calls a spade a spade. He says, listen to him, but don't live like him. For those of you who are kingdom citizens, who've said, let the king of my heart be Jesus, who can you fight for? Now, knowing the way that the world is, our zip code, our community, our neighbors, the people we connect with, I recognize this, this probably starts with prayer. That's what Christ is doing now. He always lives to make intercession. But at some point, who can you speak up for? Maybe you get to know them well enough that you can say, oh yeah, I know a Jesus who's pretty upset about hypocr hypocrites too. I know a Jesus who's pretty upset about people who show off how great their religion is. I know it'd be sort of unusual to say, let's read Matthew 23 because the pastor at my church did that for like 20 minutes. It took him that long to get through, and there's all these hypocrites and woes. And I realize you probably wouldn't just do that. But could you tell them about Jesus? Could you say, look at the one who fights for you? Look at the one who's that upset. When is it right to make enemies? 
when they block the kingdom. Let's take a moment and pray. I invite you to think about the Jesus who fought for you. Maybe think about people that the Lord could open doors that you might speak to them about this one who fights for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we do marvel. We do marvel. We don't often see bravery and courage and love like this. You walked into the biggest, most prominent religious space in all of Israel. And you spoke incredibly challenging truth. And you didn't do it because you were just angry and wanted to go on a rant. You didn't do it because you wanted to cancel a bunch of people. You didn't do it because you were just thinking of some way to disagree with lots of dysfunction and shouting and arguing and name calling. You did it because the way to heaven was blocked. And that made you so angry because you loved us so much. It made you so passionate because you loved us so much. And we just marvel. Nobody else made a way. Nobody else made a way but you, Jesus. And we thank you and we praise you for it. Before we can, it's a little bit like what Katrina was saying, even before we can really share your love, before we can really live in your love in a way that reflects outwardly toward other people, it's something that we need to take in. We have to be transformed from the inside out in so many ways. And all of us need that, at least a little bit. So please be speaking to us about ways that we can accept that you have fought for us, you have loved us with an everlasting love. And as we can this week with people that we see, some of them we know, some of them we don't, maybe you could have a few breakthroughs. Maybe we could have some divine moments where somebody might say, I'm tired of hypocrites, or I'm tired of spiritual leaders who make me worse, or I'm tired of people who say one thing and you know, never really care about me, never really love me. They get the law wrong and all the things that can be barriers to the kingdom. And we can just say, would you like to enter the kingdom no matter what? Would you like to know the way into the life that you've always wanted? Because Jesus has fought for you. Jesus has made a way. Somehow, Lord, help us have those conversations. Help us have those opportunities. We give you the glory and the honor and the power, recognizing even now that you're ready to do that. Even now that there's people who would hear that from us. And we trust that it could even be this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.